We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing well. Feels good to be here in the comfy confines of the Crawl Space Studio. It's a bit drizzly outside, so it's nice to be sitting across from uh, from you. How are you today? I'm doing well, but we got to leave early because we don't want to get impacted by the worm. Right. We know that he does come out when it's uh, raining, and it's that perfect type of rain for the worm right now. It's that misty in between uh, a drizzle and a downpour. <laughs> That's the perfect conditions for the worm. And the conditions for this interview, Lance, were perfect as well. We spoke with Celine Beth Calderon of the docu-series Theodore, which is about uh, sort of Ted Bundy adjacent, if you will. Yeah, uh, Celine does a really good job uh, intentionally staying away from uh, how... Ted Bundy is typically categorized as a as a charming individual, a handsome man, someone who could talk to talk to you one second and be you know your best friend, and and then you learn of all these uh, horrible uh, atrocities that he committed. But you know having that that uh, moniker of uh, that that charming you know everyday american guy she tries to she she does a successful job staying away from that she focuses on the victims and people who are associated and related to the victims and it's incredibly effective i think it's a six-part series if i'm not mistaken yeah i think she's still editing it and she had a screening in toronto i think this past summer and uh, she was going to do a screening at the American Crime Festival, which, of course, is not happening. And she was going to be there. Um, so that's one of the reasons we got connected with her. So at least we can be grateful uh, for the crime festival that didn't happen uh, to be connected to some wonderful people like Celine. But good things uh, came from this. And we, we did talk to her and we did organize this interview. And she turned out to be a super cool person. Not like we had any doubt that she wasn't a super cool person. But she uh, was incredibly... Um, uh, gracious with her time and very passionate about what she's doing. First time filmmaker, first time filmmaker out of the gate uh, took on this uh, daunting task, which is impressive. It's pretty incredible. So check out Theodore's social pages. You can find the links in the show notes. You can't really find the documentary anywhere yet, but I will say this is still a fascinating conversation with a really talented filmmaker, someone who has delved very deep into Ted Bundy and the victims and spoke to a lot of people whose lives were impacted by that son of a bitch, Bundy. Well, now you're just insulting his mom. Good point. He's a bastard. Well, now you're just insulting his mom. <laughs> Good point. I dislike him. There you go. Okay, so give us five stars on your favorite podcast listening app, and thanks a lot for listening. 
Welcome to Crawl Space. Celine Beth Calderon. How are you tonight, Celine? I'm good. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, really cool to get the opportunity to speak with you. And we'll get into your documentary, Theodore, which is amazing. Uh, you. Your docu-series, I should, I should say. But um, we just want to thank you for joining us, uh, even though what brought us together isn't actually happening, which is, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is the crime fest. So right. we want to say thank you for um, making the attempt to be a part of that. We appreciate it. Of course. It. Yeah. yeah. Um, and apologies on it, on it uh, being um, ca- canceled. Uh, that's a real bummer. So, um, so we're, ha- but, but we're happy to talk to you <laughs> yeah. and that that's, you know, it helps move, move forward the whole purpose of it anyway. Um, just talking and, and recording right. about your documentary and so uh, thank you for, for being here. Now, we share some mutual friends, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a nice load of them, actually. <laughs> yeah. See, that's where, that's where Tim's wrong, because I, um, like, I don't consider myself to have any friends. So <laughs> mutual faces in the crowd for the most part. Yeah, Lance is a real loner, a rebel. Oh, no. No, it's cool. Yeah, self, self-ascribed. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so who are our mutual yeah. friends? Uh, we have Dr. Lee Meller. We have uh, Cloyd Steiger. And uh, yeah. am I missing anyone? Uh, we've got Sarah Kalen. We've got ah, Emily Nestor. Yeah. yeah. So it's like small little true crime community. I mean, it just keeps evolving. Um, you know, I've started speaking with Mike Morford. Or morph. Oh, that scoundrel. Oh, <laughs> son of a bitch. Yeah. So I've been chatting with him a little bit, but I mean, it's, that's just what I love about this community. It's like, you know, here's one person, you should chat with this person. Um, and we're all kind of experts in our own way with different, you know, cases or our experiences, professions. I love it. It's a great little community. Yeah, and and the support within this um, tiny true crime community is really incredible, and you feel it, especially right. when you focus on the victims, like mm-hmm. what you've done with Theodore, because yeah. that is such an admirable quality, because I think a lot mm-hmm. of times there is some element of sensationalism that people assume has to be there, um, but what you've done with Theodore is not that. Right, thank you, yeah. Can you explain to us what Theodore is? Absolutely. <laughs> is that what makes Theodore uh, stand apart from the other documentaries that are out there? Because there's so many that you can uh, so many. access, whether it's just on <laughs> YouTube or yeah. you know, Netflix or Amazon. What's, what makes Theodore stand out? So Theodore, first and foremost, is a six-episode series. So we are coming out with the most content in terms of episodes. So that already makes us stick out. With that being said, Theodore is really about these individuals' stories while being connected to Ted Bundy. Now, where people get a little bit confused, um, because there are some overlap with some of my uh, subjects in this documentary that were seen um, in the Netflix documentary, as well as some of you know, HLNs, Oxygen, every network you can think of has created a Ted Bundy documentary in the past year. Um, I started this uh, documentary, which was supposed to be just one 
linear documentary and then all of a sudden it just blew up and we realized we needed um, episodes to make that happen. But um, so, yeah, so I started this January of 2017 and I currently reside in Salt Lake City, Utah. So I had home advantage um, in that regard. And I initially went out to um, our media here in Salt Lake and Park City and I just said, hey, I'm looking to start a documentary about Ted Bundy. Um, can I come, you know, on air? Can I come on TV? Can I, you know, do newspaper interviews? And basically just blasted it out to everybody. Just if you know somebody that has a Ted Bundy story, um, someone that knew him. I mean, I tried to get anything that, you know, anyone who would talk to me. I was just an open door. And oddly enough, I started getting emails. And while some were really crazy and outrageous stories, all of a sudden I started receiving emails from people that I've never talked before. And, um, and as soon as we started going down that route and meeting with people, um, I started realizing that there is so much more to this Ted Bundy story that never gets asked we watch a lot of these documentaries and we see the same regurgitated information over and over and over and over and over again. And we forget what's really at the forefront of the story. And that's the victims and the survivors. And every single person that we interviewed shared that same thought process. We've watched, we've read, we've seen all of this information about Bundy, but that's the one thing that gets left out. And I felt it was my duty to finally change the narrative for this. Um, being the first female to come out with a documentary about Ted Bundy, I realized I had to give the story a different um, identity, I guess you could say. So, um, you know, again, it all started in Salt Lake. We traveled to Seattle a few months later. Um and then all of a sudden, we started getting support from podcasters, <laughs> specifically My Favorite Murder. And as soon as that happened, all of a sudden, it was the word was really getting out now. And that eventually took us to Colorado, to Florida, to Idaho. Um, we went to all the major states that he killed in um, and met with so many different people. But again, like I said, Theodore, we're really focusing on the victims and survivors and what I like to say um, are the true victims as well as law enforcers, um, legal teams. People don't realize the trauma and PTSD that they take on after such a horrific case like Bundy's. And, um, and so we get to display these stories the way that they finally have wanted to share that rather than saying, okay, walk me through the time that Ted Bundy walked into the Florida State um, campus at Chi Omega in 1978. Walk me through, you know, just the bare basics and yada, yeah, yada, yada. But Celine, didn't you hear that he represented himself in trial? <laughs> yeah, I didn't you hear no that the, the judge was enamored by him? <laughs> exactly. Like, I'm sick of that. Am I allowed to swear? Yes. <laughs> okay. I just realized that because I almost stopped myself. Um, but but that's what I'm saying. Like, like, I'm so sick of those stories. And when I'm sitting in front of these individuals and asking them the questions, they're looking at me in a way that 
symbolizes the true pain and suffering that they witnessed. Um, One of our last shoots actually was at the end of July, and we went to a memorial for one of the uh, child victims. And listening to her father speak, as well as the siblings, people don't realize this is still very much a painful subject. And I can only imagine, you know, how these families and these survivors have felt in the past year, seeing all this other Ted Bundy, you know, I don't, I don't know what to call it. I mean, just media galore. And I, his face was in Times Square. Just that blew my mind. And that pissed me off so bad because I thought to myself, what is a family member thinking or feeling opening, you know, whether it be the internet or a newspaper and seeing that picture of Times Square with your fucking daughter's murderer, his face is plastered everywhere. Like he's Kim Kardashian. I mean, it just yeah, making him, <laughs> making him like the next, uh, the next great anti-hero that, you know, Absolutely. you just, he's, you, you can't help but love him. Right. Right. Was yeah. that an advertisement for uh, the Netflix show? Correct. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so ultimately, you know, a lot of people are very curious about Theodora. They want to know, you know, what separates us. But even from, you know, like I said, just the small nuggets that we have put out there um, on our social media, um, people are already like, wait, did someone just call him a piece of shit? Which was Cloyd. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, people already were Cloyd. like, wait, 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 go back, <laughs> you know? And, um, and I got to experience already what a crowd is thinking or feeling. Um, we did a special little sneak peek, like we were going to do at, um, the festival <laughs> and, uh, we did it in Toronto back in June and being able to sit in that audience and hear the audience cheer and cry and clap and feel all the things that I have felt through this process over the past three years. It really solidified that we have something special and we're bringing a new take to the story and I cannot wait for people to see it. Yeah, that's excellent. And you just uh, went through everything so thoroughly. I was looking at the list of questions that I had and (laughs) I was just like checking them out. No, it's, it's really awesome because I tend to, I tend to ask like a nine minute question. And then uh, I just in a really roundabout way. So um, I'm sure you just saved the audience a lot of (laughs) a lot of eye rolling and 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 hitting uh, fast forward 30 seconds. So Um, can you tell us about the screening in Toronto? How did that go? Yeah, it was really cool. Um, So the Toronto True Crime Film Festival, um, it was their second year. Uh, They started following our Theodore Page Honestly, like they were probably one of the first 100 people to follow us um, back in 2017 and constantly checking in with me. Is it ready yet? Is it ready yet? Is it ready yet? And um, uh, what Lisa Gallagher is the festival director and Lisa um, really felt strongly about the project because, again, we were then tipped off about the Zac Efron piece that was coming out. And so she really wanted to hit on, um, you know, the victim side of things. So uh, we finally got the approval to at least do um, the sneak peek and just about a 20 minute 
a screening as well as a Q&A afterwards. And, um, and after that, like I said, you know, just sitting in the audience, being able to hear the reactions. Um, we had some podcasters in the audience as well, including um, Esther Bubbo from Once Upon a Crime. And uh, so it was really cool, again, to just have more true crime individuals there with us watching it. Um, but I, but I think the biggest thing that people walked away from, um, at least when they came up and <laughs> shared their thoughts with me was just that they are so happy to finally see the truth come out. Um, and I think people in the true crime community or even our audience members, they can get the same stories over and over and over again. But when it's something new and it's something that maybe makes them think a little bit more, that's going to resonate more with them. Yeah, but Celine, didn't you hear that he escaped from prison twice? (laughs) I know. It's like that part is so (laughs) important. And what's funny that you mentioned that we actually went to the courthouse where he jumped out the window and we actually do a pan showing how far that jump is. So we will still have little bullshit moments like that, but, <laughs> you know, but again, but it's, but we're really trying to, the story that goes with that moment as we're showing it is still from the perspective of um, his psychologist that from Utah that Ted called after he did his first escape. So, um, so again, we really try to incorporate everyone's stories as we're going through this process um, of showing where he was. And that's the other thing that I noticed with a lot with these documentaries that they didn't go to the locations. (laughs) They usually either flew people out or they flew people, um, you know, to a separate location or I don't know, but I really enjoyed getting intimate, getting to know these people, um, whether it be in their homes or taking us somewhere. I mean, we went out to lunch with some of these people. We went out drinking with Kathy Kleiner on Halloween night, you know, in the French quarters in New Orleans, Um, you know, these people. And that's the question I get asked the most. um, You know, what is your relationship like now that you filmed? And I do consider them very much like a second family. We're all family um, at this point. And, you know, even if I just get a quick text message from one of them or an email, um, you know, it, it, it means to me that we created something together and they're hopefully going to be proud of what, you know, we put together and how their stories are going to be told on camera. So, so I think the, um, back to the original uh, question, I think, you know, the Toronto screening, people definitely got to experience that in itself. Um, and they only got, you know, 20 minutes versus five hours and what, 40 minutes lacking. <laughs> so, so there's right, a lot more right. coming. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. So I actually had a question about that. You at one point saw all of the footage that you're, you know, gathering and, and you're trying to de- debate whether or not you should leave any on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you left out that you wish you didn't leave out um, now that it's been expanded into these episodes or is everything that's there exactly how you want it to be? That's a great question. Cause I literally just told my team last week, I want to change episodes one through three. <laughs> so that's funny. You bring that up. So no, I'm not content <laughs> just yet. Um, I think, you know, going backwards from the creator side, um, my co-creator, Timothy John, 
who is brilliant individual, um, but he's been my right hand man this whole time. Um, but you know, when we started going through the episodes and breaking down what we want, we did one cut and it was right in January when the Ted Bundy tapes came out on Netflix and we watched episode one of that. And I went back to ours and I said, okay, I don't know how, but ours looks just like it. <laughs> like we need to change this drastically right now. <laughs> oh no. So, um, so really what I'm excited to show, at least for that first episode, we get um, a lot of stories from Mary Lynn Chino, who was the best friend of Elizabeth Klopfer, who was dating Ted Bundy at the time in Seattle. And, um, and you get to hear her story, her perspective of their relationship, as well as her friendship with Ted, as well as with Liz. And you hear stories that will confuse you. Meaning I heard stories about him that all of a sudden I would sit there and be like, wait, but he sounded like a legitimate caring friend, (laughs) you know, or, but then the next moment she tells me a different story. I'm like, Oh no, there's the manipulator piece of shit again right here. Oh, so she would, she would be telling stories that would make him just seem like an average person, which Uh would, sort of play with you know that perception that you have of him or that everybody has of him correct that he's kind and charismatic and charming and debonair however she brings you right back to reality like the next story and then you're like forget it yeah no that's gone and giving you all these almost i would hate to say it but easter eggs throughout her storytelling because you realize there's an escalation all of a sudden happening in the background while they may be eating burgers and drinking milkshakes, he just came back from murdering Janice and Denise Naslin at Lake Sammamish. That, those parallel stories, it's chilling. I mean, I, I, I remember looking at her and thinking to myself, like, this cannot be a real story right now. That they went out and had burgers after he murdered two women. It just well, worked up an appetite. Exa- right. And she said that he was acting off. He usually couldn't maintain eye contact, but even at that time, he was even more jittery. He took a while to respond to questions, always, you know, a couple beats behind because he's thinking of what his next answer is going to be. I mean, I those are the stories that I want to hear. But then right. you go from that Fast forward to his execution, and she talks about the confliction that she had because she said to me one time on the phone, she said, Celine, I want you to think about one of your absolute best male friends. What if you woke up the next day and you found out he was a mass murderer? What would you do? What would you feel? Would you mourn this person if they died? And she's absolutely right. I don't know what I would do. Yeah, that's so, a great question. Right. So I think, you know, again, her perspective is so important because I think now, again, today where we're experiencing a lot more murderers in a different setting, that's something that, you know, we often forget or consider that that murderer may have had family and friends and a community 
how are they handling that? That's not something that you just wake up and brush off the next day. Just, all right, he was a mm-hmm. piece of shit, moving on. So, so Marilyn is someone that I am so excited to share more of her story because she has gone on and done a few more documentaries, but we were talking the other day and I said, Marilyn, you know, the one thing I've noticed in those other documentaries, you're only on camera for two to five minutes. <laughs> and she was like, you know what? You're right. And I said, so you're going to get your justice in Theodore. Nice. Um, and we met with her a couple of times and um, she also gave us uh, that photo of Ted by the, the, his bug leaving for Utah that everyone has now seen. At least I think they've seen. Mm. Um, she was the one who gave us that photo first. So we were the oh, ones who, cool. who leaked yeah. it initially, but uh, I went to her house by myself before my producer got there and, uh, and she handed me that photo the first time I ever met her. And it was like a punch in the gut to be like, wow, this looks like a wholesome individual. And <laughs> lo and behold, he's one yeah. of the biggest devils. So, yeah. So what was, what was her attitude? Like, did she say how long it took her to, I guess, function the way she did before all of that went down with Ted Bundy? Because I, I'm assuming that it took a toll on her. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming it still takes a toll on her. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, she, it's really interesting because, like I said, she kind of goes back and forth. When she's talking about endearing stories or moments with him, she's genuinely in that moment. And she seems happy and she's laughing and she's, it's it's so interesting because again you're sitting there and you know who she's talking about but at the same time it's like these were happy moments they were in their 20s you know so they're having a grand old time now but when she starts getting to the meat and bones of everything and when they became suspicious I mean that's the other thing that people don't realize Mary Lynn also worked um, with some of the detectives as well in providing information and eventually she became very scared of him and even in those moments when they're still, we're all hanging out. And when he would come back to Seattle from Utah to visit, she was very on guard and very much, you know, trying to create that distance between them already. And, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but she talks about his escapes from, you know, Colorado. <laughs> yeah. And she was fearful. She genuinely was fearful. She had um, a brother who was a police officer and she kept calling him and just saying, what do I do? What if he shows up? What if he kills me? What if I can't imagine the paranoia that you would have because she, because she felt like he already knew that she was talking with law enforcement. So, so now she's fearful of her life as well as Liz's life. That's incredible. Yeah. So she goes into great detail about that as well as, you know, her concern for Liz and Liz's life. I mean, it's, there's, it's so nuanced, you know, and I really try to break it down, but her story is so crucial and so important. She was working with the police after his first arrest. So basically how it breaks down. So after the Lake Sammamish murders, when Mm -hmm. the composite came out um, and her and Liz are kind of, mulling over if that's Ted, that's kind of when it starts. Now, Liz starts participating 
um, you know, going, she calls the police and says, Hey, I think, you know, this kind of resembles my boyfriend. Um, but Mary Lynn was coaching her to do that. Now, when Mary Lynn got involved, it was when here in Salt Lake, um, because Mary Lynn is originally from Ogden, Utah. So she came down here in 1974 in the fall time and everything had stopped in Seattle. The women, you know, nobody was going missing anymore. She came down here. She sees the news. She goes back to Seattle and tells Liz, Hey, what's happening. You know, what was happening in Seattle is happening down in Salt Lake. I think there's something to it. So it kind of goes through this whole story and (laughs) I won't, get into full detail there. But basically Liz starts encouraging her church bishop as well as her father to reach out to the Salt Lake police. And then eventually um, Jerry Thompson, the head Utah detective of Bundy's case, um, went to Seattle and started interviewing Liz and Mary Lynn. So after that, that's when Mary Lynn became heavily involved. And, and again, that's when they you know, try to backtrack and remember things. Um, So again, so she doesn't get that notoriety either that she was a part of that. Good God. That is incredible. I'm thinking back to uh, the days before Facebook and social media. This is in the 70s. So they're operating just on what they're seeing on the news and hearing on Mm -hmm. the radio. And they see, you know, I, I mean, you actually had to go out and like, and, and, and search for a composite sketch. Right. You know, maybe they saw it on the news and then they found it in the newspaper. Now you just, you can Google it and you can see it uh, for anybody who might be a suspect of anything. Uh, and it's just an incredible that all of that effort. And then you have to also have that realization that, you know, this person, or you think, you know, exactly. this person, you start thinking about the behavior uh, that this person has exhibited and then it all fits. And it's your, it's your friend's boyfriend. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's incredible. It's batshit. Yeah. And I always describe them. Yeah. I describe them as three's company. Like that's really what it reminds me of. Like, Oh, don't, don't you dare (laughs) besmirch the fine name of, of John Ritter. Uh, I know. RIP. But that's. Assuming that he was the John Ritter, uh, Ted Bundy. (laughs) Exactly. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So, yeah, I'm just really excited for people to really know her story and, again, give her the recognition that she does deserve because I think she really does. And she had to put on a brave face more than yeah. How old was she then? Oh, let me think. I want to say probably mid to late 20s. I could be wrong. Jeez. Yeah, Good I can't imagine her. the confusion. Oh, right. yeah. Yeah, and that's... And then she eventually you know, really started to get heavily invested in um, his confessions uh, towards the end of his life. And, you know, she speaks to that and talks about how cruel it was and how upsetting it was that, 
you know, he was withholding this information and, um, and even down to asking Liz, well, can you ask him, you know, where these women's bodies are? And I mean, it's just, like I said, I, she goes into great detail about all of this, but, um, but I really want people to see and understand to take a moment and think about that question that she asked me. Cause again, I don't know what anybody would do, but she, but she laughs it off. She really kind of, she told me that she did hold it in for many years that she knew him. Um, we were technically the first people to ever interview her um, because she refused. She, the first time I spoke to her, she was like, I'm not going to appear on camera. I'm not going to let you use my voice. I'm not going to let you do anything. You can just talk to me. And I thought, well, this is great. But uh, it took several tries and several meetings and a lot of smiles. And uh, she eventually caved and said, okay, let's just do it. But, uh, but she's honestly, she's probably like my best friend out of everyone in this series. <laughs> she calls me at least once a month and we check in with each other and she's, she's a hoot. I mean, people are going to really love her. So I'm excited. Well, it's also incredible that this type of woman would feel that way about Ted Bundy in the sense of how afraid she was Mm -hmm. when she was working with law enforcement, that, that she was now afraid for her life. It just shows the the um the influence that he would have over everybody i don't think i i I think that gets kind of glossed over as well i think people just write that off as like his charm you know but i feel like there was something deeper there i mean this is a woman who uh, there's there's no there there, there's no way that ted bundy after he escaped is checking in on uh law enforcement's communication with Mm -hmm. his his victims and his girlfriend's friends and and that you know he's not like tapping things he's not looking into emails but she still had that you know she still had that feeling right it's and it's not charm no that's not charm and it's it's destructive exactly yep yeah What other uh, what other person that you uh, interviewed here stands out to you? Any any law enforcement or any uh, any doctors yeah. or anything? Another one of my favorites that uh, people haven't heard from. His name is uh, Jim Sewell, and he was a young officer um, with Florida State University, and uh, we actually got that connection through my executive producer's father, who is actually, well, he's now a retired judge um, down in that area. And, uh, and so anyhow, we had no real knowledge or his background or anything (laughs) with this interview. So it really was kind of this winging moment of like, I don't know what I'm going to ask. Well, this probably is going to turn out to be a shit show turned out to be probably top three best interviews um, that we did. And Jim was, I want to say, I think he was 26 or 27 at the time, still fairly new in the force. Um, He oversaw a lot of rape cases um, on the FSU campus. And this particular night, um, January 15th, and he was on a little date <laughs> uh, at the library and he made a comment stating, man, like this town is just so boring. Like nothing ever happens. Um, I haven't had any real 
cases kind of goes off. I am less than, I think, two hours later, he gets the call to oh my God. go to Chi Omega. And this, oh was, my God. this was his first murder crime scene. He described it as, I mean, just a bloodbath. He said like a shark attack. Um, and he was in charge of calling the parents. Oh, no. What? Really? This this poor guy yeah. is on a date at the library? He goes home after the date. Yeah, two hours later, he gets woken up to this phone call to go and report. And then he's gonna, he, he has to inform the parents. Correct. Good God. So he talks about one of the phone calls to one of the parents of the deceased and he says that he can still close his eyes and hear that mother scream. And that's something he's never going to get out of his head. Um, Jesus. Oh, sorry. That makes me really emotional. Um, he, yeah. he goes into great detail too. again, kind of what I was touching on about PTSD and really what happens to officers after they leave the force and, and they have certain cases that, you know, stick with them. And this is one of them. Um, you know, but he goes through and he talks about, you know, the full process of, you know, seeing Kathy and, you know, all the women in the house and, um, and (laughs) spoiler alert, he actually got to attend Bundy's execution and, uh, no way. Yeah. Yeah. So he walks us through execution day as well as you know, where he stood at the time of the death penalty to where he is now. Um, Such an interesting individual and just has a lot of important messages to share. Um, But he's someone that I just absolutely admire and, um, and again, shared stories that that I don't think people really understand or realize. Um, Again, when you come onto a crime scene, I mean, again, it's, it's the, stories that we like to hear as an audience member but again let's stop let's break this down let's go through every little minute detail and get an idea of what that's like and that's exactly what he did and I actually the one thing I do want to preface is that I was very adamant with every single one of my subjects that they were not to speak of how Bundy murdered of any crime scenes or anything like that if they were not present Mm. solely because I don't want this again, regurgitated, you know, just hyperbole, you know, information, (laughs) like I don't want it. So, um, so I allowed him, uh, Mr. Ken Katsaris, who was the sheriff at the time and Kathy Kleiner are the only ones that I allowed to speak of the scene and what happened. And again, and I rightfully told them, you know, this is their story. They're allowed to speak of what they remember. Yeah. I have a question about the, uh, attending the, the execution. Is that something that he volunteered to do? Did he request to be there to see it? Or, um, was he like assigned to be there? If my memory serves me right. And nobody quote me on this. I have to go back and check my notes. I want to say, if I remember correctly, they reached out to a lot of the law enforcers in Lake City as well as Tallahassee 
um, and like prosecutors. And I mean, they, I believe they invited those people. So some people said yes. And some people said no, like Ken Katsaris was invited. He declined. So I believe Jim was offered uh, that position to go. And then the other individual was Bob Deakle, who was adamant that he wanted to be there. He was the prosecutor in the Kimberly Leach case in Lake City. And he was also in attendance, um, but he felt like he needed to see the job done. And that was his moment of ensuring that the case was closed, was seeing money take up. Yeah, was that was that Jim's feelings as well that he had been there from the beginning and he wanted to see it right to the end? You know, I honestly don't remember. <laughs> I'm trying to think back to that. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure the uh, you know. <laughs> I'm sure that moment's not lost on on no, him. You know, no, I'm, no, no, I'm no, sure no. once the once the execution date is set, it's he's probably bad. thinking to himself like, "I was there." Yeah. In the beginning. Exactly. You know, and it I, would seem wrong to not be there at the end. Right. And I think if I remember correctly, the only thing that I kind of remember significantly, and again, this was almost exactly a year ago that we did that interview, and it's one of the hardest ones for me to watch, but uh, I know he mentioned that he went and got some scotch right afterwards. I think a steak and scotch. <laughs> oh, yeah. That. So <laughs> that was the one part I do remember. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, so I would say him and then. Lastly, I mean, it's kind of a toss up between Kathy Kleiner uh, as well as an individual by the name of Bruce Lubeck. Um, Kathy Kleiner was a survivor at the Chi Omega house. Um, and I don't want to speak too much to her story because, again, she's been in a lot of the other documentaries, but, um, but she shared a lot more um, in ours. I don't know if she shared this. She, I think she mentioned she tried to tell the same stories in the other ones, but they didn't show it. Uh, but our interview was the first interview. She said that she ultimately got emotional um, because she said she could feel the connection between a woman and a woman. And that ultimately made her feel more vulnerable and more comfortable to speak open. But um, the one part that I do want to stress on her story that I think very much encompasses today. Um, you know, Kathy was barely hanging by a thread um, of her life. And when she got to the hospital, um, you know, they were concerned that she was sexually assaulted as well. And she heard them say a rape kit. And Kathy said out of all the events that transpired that night, that was the one thing that was the most upsetting to her was to hear of that. And she was raised um, in a Hispanic family. They take, you know, your celibacy very seriously. And that was the most upsetting part to her. So again, kind of tying in today's conversations around, um, sexual misconduct, I think that really speaks volumes that someone who almost lost their life really was only concerned about that. So, um, so Kathy will go into detail about that. Also go into detail from the moment that she went back to, you know, her bedroom to obtain her items, then going back down to Miami where she grew up and what transpired afterwards. Um, 
and that she was not allowed to speak to her sorority sisters anymore. Nobody kept in contact with her and she never knew why until this, a different funeral. So she'll go into detail about that. Um, But Kathy is someone that has been hit with so many trials and tribulations and, and is such an important character. And I say character because when I met her, she really was just a character in a book to me almost. And then to meet her face to face for the first time was like, this is a real living, beautiful human being. Um, My gosh. So you dove so deep into this. Where did you come from? What, uh, what, (laughs) what, what, what is your background? I, I just wrote down. This is your first documentary. Yeah, correct. <laughs> you, you, at, le- at least you, at least you dipped your toe in the whole thing, and you didn't take on a uh, really <laughs> substantial, heavy project. Yeah, really. yeah, no. For the first one out. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. My background's pretty. I mean, I come from a family. My siblings are in the industry out in Los Angeles, but they're uh, not in documentaries. One's in TV. The other one is in feature films. And uh, I studied communications, specifically public speaking uh, in college and really always felt just, I don't know, documentaries have always been something that has resonated with me, even as a kid watching like Unsolved Mysteries, Rescue 911. I loved (laughs) just watching real stories Um, and that just carried along. But uh I grew up in Park City, Utah, so home of the Sundance Film Festival. And yes. um, and so back in uh, 2015, I went back to get a second bachelor's in film, and I took a Sundance class at the University of Utah. And after that semester, I realized, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to try to do this on my own. Uh, so I started volunteering at the Sundance Film Festival and by the graces of God, honestly, I was put in the documentary film program and I don't know how. Oh, wow. To this day, I still Good don't know you. how. <laughs> yeah, so, that's huge. Uh, so yeah, so I volunteered uh, from 2016 up until this current uh, festival and they were kind of the ones that were like, you know what, you have a concept, run with it, just do it. So Theodora was actually born at Sundance uh, in 2017. Um and yeah, and that was then I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And you know what? I still don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but at least you have like a, a huge budget behind this project. <laughs> oh, yeah, just money flowing, you know, just <laughs> it's crazy, you know, Times Square. Well, <laughs> no. I think uh, what you I think what you said earlier about, you know, I just said, fuck it. And I did it. Like that's sort of what they teach you anyway. Correct. Is like you go, and you just you said you're told you you know you got this project. It's a passion. You just need to go do it. That's just a politer way of saying that. Correct. Right. It's a good lesson. Yeah. No one's gonna wait. Yeah. You know. No, no one's gonna do it for you. you. You just gotta do stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And like I said, it was just running around my state, being like, "Will somebody give me a microphone?" <laughs> and and trust me, and people were like, <laughs> "Who's this crazy lady?" Yeah. Nobody's gonna want to talk about Ted Bundy. Yeah, you're like, I have a degree in public speaking. Give me a microphone. Exactly. So. I, thought, I thought that was the degree. It came with the degree. That's what it was. Right. Exactly. So, um, but pardon the uh, the Ted Bundy question here. Um, 
Now, there's been some conjecture about if he has a daughter or not. I'm, mm-hmm. uh, I, I have a strong opinion on this. I'm curious if you have any insight or what your opinion is on this. Mm-hmm. Um, he does. He does? And he does. Uh-huh. And it's, this is probably like top three questions that I get asked all the time from just random people. Is she in your documentary? <laughs> no. <laughs> and I wouldn't invite it, to be honest. Um, well, for for her sake, correct. Um, when I think about the cards that she has been dealt with, I'm sure in her life, I can't even imagine how you begin to rationalize that. And then she's another person that I think about often. Again, what is she thinking with all of these documentaries coming out with the Zac Efron one? That's how she gets to know her dad is through that. Um, Now, I talked a little bit about this on Lee's podcast, Murder Was the Case. So if anyone wants to go and reference that, uh, I was given a ton. And when I say a ton, I mean a ton of Bundy's personal belongings. And I got to read through a lot of letters and papers and his joke book and poems and blah, 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 blah. But I'm sorry, did you just say his joke book? Correct. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's like a comedian. He he tried to throw some zingers together. <laughs> mm. They fell pretty flat. I'll say that. Yeah. Uh, but through his letters going in and out of Stark Prison, um, there were some little nuggets in there that I believe I was able to figure out who his daughter was. Um and yeah, and kind of that life after, you know, his death. But uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, and I know a lot more daughters of murderers have come out and, you know, spoken to it. Like uh, Keith Jesperson's daughter, uh, Melissa Moore, I think is her name, uh, who did the Happy Face podcast, which is a phenomenal podcast. But as yes. I, but I mean, even that, even listening to that, I just had a pit in my stomach because I just kept thinking, I wonder if this is how she feels, Bundy's daughter. I mean, just do I have those traits? You know, am I going to end up a murderer one day? You know, just what is my brain like? How is it wired? I mean, I, I don't know, but that's, you know, and if she ever wanted to speak or reach out to me just privately, I would welcome that wholeheartedly but again I don't know what you know what advantage that would give anybody um, other than just her looking like an animal in a cage and everyone gawking yeah. at yeah. also I mean it's basically satisfying people's curiosity absolutely yeah yeah so. right so yeah. you're right yeah there's not too much actual purpose to it yeah. uh this is fascinating though I'm really interested in that um Wow. Do you have any insight on how that happened? Was it was is the the folk legend, I suppose, uh, true that uh, that the mother of his kid was um, impregnated while he was in jail? Mm-hmm. That's yeah, he, true. He paid off. That's guards. Yeah. No, that's, that's the true. part I just have a hard time <laughs> believing. Like oh. a guard. Yeah, you've been you've been adamantly against that. Oh my god! How a guard is gonna is gonna let a, a, a convicted killer just. Uh, Dude, he's charming. You would be. Oh my god! And that's you're kidding me. 
I'm disgusted. <laughs> no. And that's the one thing that weirded me out through this whole process is that the people that actually did know him or spend adequate time with him, they all said the exact same thing to me. And they said, you know what? If you sat down with him, I guarantee you, you would just love him. You would adore him. Like he, he would talk to politics with you. Like you would just think he's so funny. He would adore you. Like talking to me, like this is a long lost uncle. You know what I mean? Like, oh, if you knew him, like, and I just kept sitting there thinking to myself, like, this is asinine. Like, I don't understand. But I did speak with a guard who, uh, we didn't interview him on camera. Um, he was going to, and unfortunately his home got impacted pretty heavily by hurricane Michael, uh, which occurred when we went to Tallahassee last year. Um, but he mentioned that him and Ted would play cards. They would pull pranks on his wife. Uh, they would prank call her from the prison. <laughs> and, I mean, he literally. Oh, oh, hold on, hold on. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> What's more of a prank call when Ted Bundy's calling your wife? Correct. This is so like, what more do you have to do? Say it's not Ted Bundy? Exactly. Like, it's Ted Bundy calling her. Like, <laughs> right. what's the prank? Like, that's just fucking scary. Yeah, I know. I know. And he had a great laugh about it. He's like, I know. It was not very nice, but. So, it's just, <laughs> I mean, he, I'm telling you, he could get away with it. Like, if you watch Mindhunter and the whole Ed Kemper scenario between, you know, him and Holden, like, that that's sincerely how I feel Ted was like people just enjoyed being around him. He could bullshit really, really well. And he could remember personal things about everybody that he meets. So you walk into a room and he's going to ask you about your family. How's skiing? How's church? How's so-and-so? Of course, like you're going to be manipulated by this asshole. And, and yeah, no, Wow. Sounds like a fine line between uh, a perfect psychopath and a uh, politician. Correct. (laughs) Which he was trying to be both. Well, he was both. (laughs) Yeah, he really was. Yeah. Good Lord. Yeah. I want to pivot real quick uh, because I want to make sure I get this in. Um, You're a a member of uh, Women in Film. Mm -hmm. Is that that correct? Yep. For the LA chapter. I haven't done much with it because I'm not currently residing in LA, but I'm in LA often. Cause that's actually where I'm originally from. Um, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, but my next upcoming project was actually, um, I was contacted by Sarah Kalin. So I was anticipating going through the women in film <laughs> to get my next project or to get some ideas and uh, a different one fell into my lap. So, um, but yeah, but I'm hoping to do a little bit more with them as well as I'm a Latina. And so I'm actually working right now to um, get into like a specific group for Latinx uh, filmmakers as well. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so I'm looking to expand out more on that. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I only bring that up because the, 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 uh, the subject matter of Theodore is focusing on the victims. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's uh, admirable that, you take, you know, that, that cause and you try to apply it in your profession. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And we've, yeah. we, uh, at the Toronto film festival, they actually gave a percentage of the ticket sales to their rape crisis center, 
uh, based in Toronto. And then when we did our Indiegogo, we actually also uh, donated on behalf of the victims and survivors to Rain as well. So uh, when it comes out, I equally would still like to have something like that to ensure that, you know, money that comes in is still putting being put out for those resources for all victims. Um, and that's something that's very important to me um, when it comes to this stuff to ensure that we're helping others along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And where can people see this if it's uh, available anywhere? <laughs> TBD. Right now? Or? TBD. Uh, the actual <laughs> series or like where they can find us on social media? Uh, well, yeah, the the series, because I'm sure you're going to get at least at least 300,000 emails after people hear this <laughs> uh, episode and they're going to say, uh, I, I'm looking for it. I, I don't know where to find it. Yeah. So the best way to keep up with all of our formal updates is to follow us um, on social media. So we are hoping to have that answer by the end of the year. Um, and so as soon as we have it, best believe we'll be blasting that out. But um, people can follow us on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, as well as Tumblr, even though I don't know what I'm doing on Tumblr. Um, but just look up either Theodore the Documentary or Theodore the DocuSeries on any of those platforms and you will find us. 